this business requires a certain amount of finesse. Forget it, Dave. It's Chinatown. I don't want your last dime. What kind of guy you think I am? You're right. When you're right, you're right. And you're right. It's Chinatown. Welcome to the Center Cut. I am Michael. And I am Dave. And today we have perhaps the guest with the biggest vocabulary to date and probably the largest Twitter following to boot, Mr. Christopher Harris. Chris, thanks for being here. Of course. Thank you very much for asking me. It should be very fun. Yes, definitely excited. And Chris, you are a giant name in the fantasy football podcast space. I've been a listener for close to seven years at this point, but I don't know how much of a crossover there will be there with our listeners. You are, however, a writer with four books to your name. Tulsa's my favorite, though I haven't read The Big Clear or finished War on Sound yet. I'm a sinful person, I know. But (laughs) I know that you're not really selling anything here, but if you could just tell the listeners why they should give a damn about you (laughs) and where they should go once they're over the moon after listening to you today, the the floor is yours. I don't have an answer to that. It's it's an existential question that I don't have an answer for. (laughs) Why should anybody give a damn about me? That's a a tough one. Well, I'm wearing my Felix Grays, so you have some sort of sway. Nice. Me too. <laughs> Chris, really appreciate you being here today. Yeah. Uh, Dave, we've buried the lead. Mm-hmm. What exactly mm-hmm. are we doing? Well, today we have watched the beginning and ending of Chinatown. We are going to recap those ends for our listeners. And then Chris has some questions for us about what we missed in the middle. Indeed. Chris, why Chinatown? I mean, it's one of the greatest movies ever made, I guess. I mean, it's it's incredibly influential. It's it's kind of the right turn that neo-noir needed. And now every detective story or, uh, you know, like whodunit kind of thing that, that gets turned on its ear owes things to Chinatown. It's Jack Nicholson. It's Roman Polanski, who clearly wind up having personal problems that made him not able to uh, be in the USA for the rest of his life. But, he, you know, he, he's he's the director. He's also in it. It's considered the greatest script probably in Hollywood history. Uh, that's usually when you ask people in Los Angeles, like, what's the greatest script? The knee-jerk answer, the cliched answer is Chinatown. It somehow makes water rights be interesting. <laughs> True. <laughs> it is... Important. Simply put, one of the best movies ever made. All right. That is, uh, those are big words there. We'll see if it lives up. <laughs> well, no, you won't, actually. <laughs> well, that's true. We'll see if part of it holds up. We'll see if part of it holds up. It was released in 1974. Like Chris mentioned, it was directed by the Roman Polanski, written by Robert Town, and stars a young but still old Jack Nicholson and Faye Dunaway, whoever the heck that is. Did you guys really not know who Faye Dunaway was, or...? I don't, but I'm not good with actors oh. and actresses. I'm, I'm more of a TV okay. guy, so mo- that's why we have this podcast. I don't know a lot about movies. The name was incredibly familiar to me. It was and still is critically acclaimed, like Chris said. Though it only won one Oscar for Best Screenplay, it was nominated for 11, and it has a 99% on Rotten Tomatoes. But we are already deep in the preamble. Let's get into the recaps before this podcast turns into a desert. <laughs> All right, well, we do open to some melodic haunting jazzy music as we uh we watch about two minutes of old-timey credits in sepia style black and white i'm notorious for hating all things made before i existed i'm i'm a historicism guy <laughs> <Yeah>. so <laughs> because i wasn't in it i can't fully appreciate it i get all that but this like wah, 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 this credits music 
all I can picture is just like Great Depression era white dudes jumping out of buildings to their deaths. It's so depressing. It's so depressing. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I I also think it's just like classically detective-y. It just has that like detective-y feel to it. It's supposed to. Correct. (laughs) My favorite credit, though, I don't know if you caught this. It was Jules by The Family Jules. (laughs) What what does that mean? What is that credit? Yeah, who knows? Well, we do after some, after the credits and, and music subside, we fade into some black and white photographs of some folks making whoopee in a garden somewhere. I felt like I had to pick a word for sex that would have been used in the early 1900s <laughs> as well. A very young Jack Nicholson is in a very amazing white three-piece suit. So good. Sitting at a desk, uh, looking as this kind of disheveled man gets emotional over the images that he's flipping through. Poor Curly. I would grunt and molest the blinds too if I saw black and white photos of my wife getting plowed in the grass. (laughs) Wow, what a sentence. Well, not even because of the sex either. Like, did you see how tall that grass was? I mean, we've talked a lot about how both you and I aren't, you know, the biggest fans of nature. And I don't know, just having sex in like a really tall grass to field like that sounds kind of like my worst nightmare. There's no way she's not getting bitten by ticks. There's no way. And I don't know if my health insurance covers Lyme disease. So I, I'm out on that. Sure. But you'd think Curly would actually like that because, he, you know, this is not uh, marital sex. So he's he likes it. They're uncomfortable. Mm, interesting. We didn't know. We don't know that about Curly, but I guess now we do. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, Jack Nicholson, like super, super, super young, as you said. How old do you think he was when he made this? 34. My guess is 38. Yeah, 36, 37, right? Super young. Super young. <laughs> I don't know how young that is. I mean, my, young to me. young. Jack Nicholson's been old my entire life, so <laughs> for th- this is far younger than, than most of the Jack Nicholson I've ever seen. Well, we do na- learn, as as Michael said, this uh, this man flipping through the photographs, his name is Curly, and um, Jack pours him a drink to drown his sorrows. He escorts him out of his office as we learn his name is Jake. And I have a point here is that, so it's Gittes, it's spelled G-I-T-T-E-S, but it, I feel like it's pronounced six or seven different ways. It really is. Thank you. In the movie. Everyone pronounces it differently. Two ways. Oh, so there's only two? Mm-hmm. I feel like it was like Giddis and... Giddies. Giddies or like a Giddies. Or yeah, there's like- a Giddies. Faye Dunaway does a little Giddies because she's like doing fake British. But the, the big one is Mr. Gitz. Oh, Gitz. Yeah, that comes just- later. All right. Well, now we know. So uh, so he does escort him out of his office. And we also learn at this point that he, if we couldn't figure it out already, he is a, a private investigator. His secretary, uh, as he closes the door behind him, uh, escorts him or sends him into the office of his associates, Mr. Walsh and Mr. Duffy, where he finds Mrs. Mulray, a woman who is convinced her husband is cheating on her. Hollis. Hollis Mulray. He is the chief engineer of water and power, so he's a, a relatively uh, well-known person in this, in these them parts. These them parts. The, <laughs> these them parts. He, <laughs> he essentially says like, oh, you're a woman, so you should just kind of forget about it. Not worth it, which is a sign of the times, but also pretend not to know your husband is cheating, you're better off, and then prepares her for the very high potential cost of this because it can be costly to track and and research someone of this type of stature. And uh, she says money does not matter to her. Hey, Michael here. In a moment, you'll be listening to the episode again, but it will sound very much worse. 
we had extreme technology issues trying to record, and Chris, the master he is, actually had to take on recording the rest of the episode over Skype. But that means it sounds like Dave and I, and occasionally Chris, are talking through tin cans on strings. And not even good cans. I'm talking like dollar store cans of dog food. You'll hear. We know it's not the audio quality you've grown accustomed to, and we're sorry. Thank you for understanding, and we promise it will be back to our normal sound quality next time. So Jake does agree to take the job, and sometime later, he's in just another very sexy three-piece suit, and sitting in a large town hall, city hall type environment, I think, during a meeting that is about a dam proposal because LA is having some serious water issues. Is this supposed to be in the past or is this just present? Because <laughs> I know that that is a constant issue. We find out soon that Mr. Mulray is here as well. He makes a presentation, basically says there was a dam before this one that collapsed and killed a bunch of people. And this one's going to be exactly the same. So we're not doing it. It's not happening. And everyone in the room gets very mad about it. <laughs> and there are goats. There are goats in the aisles. Yeah, there's goats. And a, looks like a shepherd comes in. Yeah. And is like, well, if you, if you got goats. Did you recognize the shepherd? I didn't recognize the shepherd. I thought he looked familiar, so I looked up his name. It's Ron Howard's dad. Oh, wow. Interesting. I don't know what that means, but. Don't either. <laughs> it, it's fun, <laughs> fun fact, though. Yeah, but basically the farmer comes in and is like, what do you expect me to do with these damn animals? These goats? If And I, we have no idea why that means anything. Who knows? <laughs> but Jake does continue his day following Mr. Mulray first to a large open valley where Mr. Mulray just looks at some soil and then chats with a boy on a horse. This was actually the origin story for that song by the band America. No, is that over everyone's head? No. <laughs> I mean, I got it. <laughs> I, I think it, it's a horse of no name. I don't know that, that the bo- there's a boy on that horse. I don't think in the song. <laughs> Fair. Well, there's a boy on this horse with no saddle. Next, we follow Mr. Mulray to the coast. He is just kind of looking at the ground a bunch. He picks up a starfish. A very big starfish, starfish. I feel like. Very big. And, uh, and he's just kind of like looking at the rocks and the coastline and hanging out here. And Jake is, is watching to try and figure out what's going on. They're there for a while because it goes from like light to dark. A large drain pipe behind Jake opens up and a bunch of water comes rushing out. And Jake is like, screw this. I'm done with this. I'm leaving. And he goes and sets a, some stopwatches or, or pocket watches mm-hmm. to match the time on his watch. And then he puts one on either side of one of Mr. Mulray's tires on his car to smash whichever one he, whichever direction he goes. And that way he'll know what time he left. That watch trick blew my mind. Yeah, exactly. That's how you know it's the greatest screenplay ever written. Yeah, I couldn't even believe it. How like smart and simple that was. Smart and simple at the same time. Smart and simple, but there's no way that you would ever do that because you'd have to pay money for the thing that's just going to get smashed. (laughs) So you would have you would have sat there for however long it took. There's no way you would have spent the in whatever decade this is the the two dollars 
to buy two pocket watches? No way. Did you see the number of pocket watches that he had in his glove he compartment? So like many. 50 yeah. of them, yeah. I mean, he's probably charging them to Miss Mulray, though, to be fair. Like, he's not paying for these other <laughs> That's pockets. That's right. That's true. We also skipped the part where he just littered for funsies. I, now I know where to who to blame for global warming. Thanks, Jack Nicholson. That's true, yeah. He grabs something off his windshield and just tosses it on the ground. <laughs> Classic. So sometime later, Jake is back at the office. We do see one of the two watches that's broken, and he remarks to one of his compatriots that he was there for a very long time. Like, it was a while before Mr. Mulray left. His, his associate also fills him in on, on the happenings, what he found out uh, since then. He was tracking Mulray. He went to a bunch of reservoirs, but notably got into an argument with an older gentleman with a cane. Uh, that's mm-hmm. the only thing that Walsh, a uh, compatriot of his, could make out of, of of interest during his time. And he said that during that argument, the only thing he could hear, because traffic was loud, was apple core. Mm. Like question the core of an later. apple, apple core. Yeah. Excited to talk about that question later. But listen, I, I complain about technology, you know, like not having cell service or our internet breaking while we're trying to record here today. But good Lord, am I glad that I didn't have to get my hands all wet just to look at a picture. What? <laughs> I wouldn't last I mean, a minute pre 1980s. That's just because he was so excited to see them. He could have had Walsh hang them to dry and then looked at them a few hours later if, he, if that was really a concern. I'll have you know, though, like uh, high schools, because my high school, we our photography class, we had to develop the film like the, it was it was manual film. It's the nine, you know, nineties really? ish. They, they had the chemicals, the fixer. You always put it in the fixer at the end to make sure it stops developing. And it was came out yeah. all wet. You like hung it up on wire. Yeah. I'm trying to say that um, Jack Nicholson and I are very similar. Yeah. In a lot of, lot of ways. Yeah. yeah because yeah, you both look so young. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 83 years old. <laughs> uh, but we do, uh, we do, Jake gets a call from Duffy, his, his other associate, gets called down to Echo Park. It sounds like Mulray is there with a, a little young thing, I think is is what Duffy calls it. And they are riding around in a rowboat together. So, oh, they're actually, I, for, for a second, I thought like there was no affair or even anything close to that. It was just Mulray looking at water all the time. And his <laughs> wife thought that he was, that he was cheating on her because he looks at water too much. Turns out there may be something at, at the very end of our 15 minutes, see Duffy and Jake riding around in a rowboat together presumably to uh to keep an eye on on mr mulray and that's that's when our 15 minutes cuts off just yeah. as he tosses a cigarette into the lake which is also bad for <laughs> our environment jake i just loves littering <laughs> just loves it two hours and 11 minutes is this the longest movie that you've done uh i don't that's believe so i okay. i couldn't call out one that's longer but yeah uh, it's got to be pretty close it's, it's, it, up, it's there, up there for sure it's up there yeah you're mi- my point being that you're missing a chunk we are and it's also the most convoluted script in hollywood history so <laughs> chef's kiss good luck everybody yeah yeah <laughs> ex- excited but before we get to the middle we have the last 15 here which began at one hour 54 minutes and 25 seconds and Jake is on the phone with his colleague Walsh, and it looks like he had an emo phase in the middle of this movie, but then somebody pulled out his nose ring because his nose is torn to hell. There's a question <laughs> about it later. We'll get there. He says that somebody named Escobar is going to book him in five minutes, and that if he's not back in the office in two hours, meet him in Chinatown. Ooh, baby. Title reference. Gotta be significant. <laughs> Once he hangs up, 
Escobar and his crony arrive, and Jake, he just leisurely walks over to let them in. <laughs> He's such a G. And uh, <laughs> we learn that they're all looking for a woman. Context clues makes me surmise that it's Madame Mulray from the beginning with the water-obsessed hubby, but they head to her maid's house, which also happens to be Curly's house from the beginning. Kind of confused. <laughs> Wait, I think you missed that one just from watching it. That's that's like yeah. he he says he's gonna take them to the maids. I don't think. Yeah, oh, I didn't. That's not that, I felt that that okay. was that was him lying. Okay, I got it. He was just going to his friend's house. Okay, yeah. I, I I get it now. Escobar gives Jake three minutes to go in alone as a favor, and the woman who opens the door. I believe is the woman who contracted Lyme disease after a field romp <laughs> in the first 15. And she has a shiner, which I guess it's fitting that Curly is there and wearing a wife beater. If true, yeah. Curly, I thought I liked you, but die in a fire now. I know, Curly. Why would you do this? I thought I liked I him. Thought, I, I thought like you were a decent guy, and I don't know how I feel now. Did you guys recognize the actor who played Curly? No. He also looked really familiar. He looks familiar, but I no, I could not place him. You've seen Rocky. Polly. Yes, Polly. Polly. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's Burt Young is the actor. Curly's he's just a dimwit, and Jake <laughs> cajoles him into sneaking him out of the house and away by driving off. And you best believe that I nearly pooped my pants when Curly started <laughs> off that car. <laughs> I thought my cars are bad. It was like a damn lawnmower. It's so <laughs> odd because it's so loud when it starts, and it's actually kind of quiet once it's running. Meanwhile, Nicholson is doing just the most charming, smiling and ducking down so the cops won't see him as they go by. Just the <laughs> ultimate jack face. Like, you can't help but love him, you know? Oh, yeah. 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 He does. He puts his head in Curly's lap. Uh, I'm w- working on being less crass, so I'm not even going to make any jokes. And he asks Curly to smuggle two passengers to pay off his debt. And Curly obliges. Again, context tells me that this is probably Miss Mulray and someone else. Maybe daughter. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe. Who knows? Jake is now at Miss Mulray's house and calls Cross. He is actually the old guy from the photo at the beginning with Applecore, I believe. Yes. And he is saying that he has Cross's daughter and he should come by with the money they discussed. What kind of backwards ransom bullshit is this? He's asking... uh, Confused. But we find out that she's not there, which makes me think that he is just using this as a ploy. Dave is good. No to come here. Dave is good. (laughs) Are you saying he's good now? Wait till I crush him when we answer the questions in the middle. (laughs) We'll see about that. And it it pans to a pair of cracked spectacles, not Felix Gray's, on the table. (laughs) There's a cool shot of smoke billowing around some pillars. I really, really like that for whatever reason. It's just Jake somewhere in the shadows ready to pounce as Cross arrives. Cross is a rich old codger, you know, like any of the handful of people who rule this country. And I'm I'm so confused. I'm very, very confused because I'm fairly confident that Miss Mulray, Evelyn, is mm-hmm. his daughter. Mm-hmm. But then the wording of Cross's question and Jake's answer makes it sound like Evelyn's daughter is his daughter. So is Evelyn not his daughter, but actually like a secret girlfriend? My brain hurts. <sighs> it should. You missed the middle of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Are you, were you not confused by this, Dave? It was a I I guess I was slightly confused by it, but also I don't know the way they talked in old timey movies like this. I kind of 
resigned myself. I resigned myself to the fact that like I can't put a lot of stock in what I assume they're saying. I have to put together like what I think is happening based on the rest of the context clues I can see with my eyes. So Dave, what is the date at which old timey movies begin? Oh, great question. Um I would say anything pre fifties is old timey. Okay. Yeah. We're I on the same page. That, when you that's said, good... I, I thought you were referring to Chinatown itself as an old timey movie. I was like, well, I mean, come on. <laughs> no, I'm referring to like the, the scripts that they wrote. Right. The period they were trying to capture. To be, yeah. yeah. <laughs> an old yeah, time period. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, Jake shows cross an obituary for Hollis Mulray. Oh no. And mm. then his broken glasses scandal turns out, according to Jake cross, drowned Hollis in a tide pool in the backyard. That rich son of a bitch. <laughs> they talk about Cross's plan to make money off the bill that will build the dam, the one Hollis refused to build, and it, it kind of all it kind of ties the motive together. Mm-hmm. Just the rich get richer all for nothing. As Jake puts it in his question, why are you doing it? How much better can you eat? What can you buy that you can't already afford? Eat the rich. <laughs> you've never seen that. You guys have never seen a clip of that. That's a very famous little speech. No, but it's also sad because even though this is like 50 years, almost 50 years old, it's probably even worse now with sure. these just like mega wealthy fucktwats mm-hmm. barreling the world into oblivion so they can mm-hmm. buy another yacht. Like it's just, it's hard not to be angry. <laughs> it's hard not to be angry. <laughs> it's true. <sighs> but Cross calls for his henchman, Claude. Silly name for a henchman, but it's the 70s. Who takes Hollis's glasses from Jake and <laughs> he flicks his earlobe a bunch with the gun. It's kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> he does a little like earplay. Super Freudian, obviously. <laughs> it's meant to be. Yeah. with the gun. It's great. Yeah. yeah. His name's Claude. But cue the raucous keys as we see the sights of Chinatown from the backseat. Jake Cross and Claude and Root. They arrive to Walsh and Duffy, handcuffed. And out pops Escobar to also arrest Jake. God damn it, Escobar. Just listen to Jake. Cross is a piece <laughs> of guilted poo-poo, and he killed Hollis because of the water. At this point, I can't tell if Escobar is just bad at his job or if he is On the in books. Cross's pocket. Yeah. And I don't know if that's the intent of the whole in the entire movie or just something I missed in the middle that I'm I'm drawing a conclusion, but we definitely know at the end of the movie, but it kind of feels that way to me. Maybe a little of both. Maybe a little of both. But uh, Escobar ain't here. None of it. <laughs> he locks uh, Jake to the car wheel. But at this time, Evelyn and Catherine show up. Still don't understand the family tree. <laughs> Cross tells Catherine that he's her grandfather as she gets into a, an open topped car. I don't know if you'd call it a convertible. I don't know if it could put the top on, but she gets in and he says to Evelyn that she's mine, too. But Evelyn shoves him away and points a glittery little gun at him. Oh, no. I also don't know if that means she's mine, too, as a daughter or mine, too, as just family and you're taking her away type of type of feel. Very hard to tell. Yes. Very, very confusing. But the cops get angry, obviously, because she's pointing a gun willy nilly here. But she manages to get in the car with Catherine, not before shooting Cross in the arm. 
kind of near the shoulder. There's a little little bullet hole in his coat. It was John Huston, who's a very famous director, directed a million million movies, uh, The African Queen, whatever. He's the old man, right? He's the actor, and mm-hmm. I'm not sure he sells being shot in the arm very well. <laughs> no, because he just like kind of flinched and like he just at touches it. his, like, he what? just holds his arm and goes, "Damn!" I guess it's he's tough and indestructible, just like the rich, right? That's the point. Yeah. Yeah. I'm kind of angry at Evelyn for not committing. Yeah, shoot him in the face, man. Two yeah. feet away from him, just like yeah. if you're gonna do it, do it. I don't think yeah. she wanted to kill him. No. Yeah. But she starts he to drive off. Father, grandfather, uncle, brother. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But she starts to drive off, and the cops start blasting, obviously. Uh, about 20 to 30 yards down the road, we hear the horn, and the car slows to a stop. Never a good sign. As all the men start to beat the pavement and head to the car, we start to hear a wrenching scream. It's Catherine in a tizzy. They open the driver's side door and a lifeless Evelyn Mulray falls out. Bloody bullet hole right directly through her eye. Holy God, it's gruesome. It is gruesome. Yeah, the 70s. <laughs> but Cross uses this opportunity to rub his grubby old hands all over Catherine's face and <laughs> basically yeah, yanks her out of the car by her head. Right. There's a bunch of silence as the guys all stand around. And before Jake starts to turn into the Hulk, Escobar yells at him to go home. And we get the famous line from Walsh who quips, Forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. I hope you're not claustrophobic, because as they walk away, just tens of Asian men and women start to crowd the dead body. It's legitimately frightening. (laughs) And (laughs) Escobar yells for them to, to clear the area. So they all back off and the camera starts to pull back and up so we can see the locals crane their necks as Jake and crew walk off into the bleak, bleak night. And then that sad sack, dingy diner music from the open plays. Credits start to roll. Chinatown out. First of all, you missed a Jack Nicholson line where he goes as little as possible. Yeah, I didn't know what that meant. I didn't because you didn't watch the rest of the movie, but he did <laughs> yeah. say as little as possible. And then also dingy diner music. That's like classic mm. detective, detective <laughs> saxophone. Like you know, it's what I would hear if I went to the uh, a crappy diner at like one o'clock for lunch. <laughs> where do you live? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but that is the first and last 15 of Chinatown. Before we get into the questions that Chris was so gracious to create about the middle, we're going to hit up a center commercial. Today's episode is brought to you by the true crime podcast, Gone But Never Forgotten. David, you know I'm down to talk some death. And so is Lance, the host of Gone But Never Forgotten. But only respectfully, of course. Gone But Never Forgotten is over 80 episodes deep at this point since coming onto the scene in April of 2021, and I count myself as a fan. Sorry, a goner. That's what we call ourselves. I am going to die someday, so it's accurate. Some of my favorite episodes so far are episode 68, What Was He Running From? The Blair Adams Story. Dude was like going all over the continent and then just ended up dead in Tennessee, which is probably like bottom 10 place to die in the US. Or episode 38, The Bizarre Disappearance of Diane Bellinger. She died after sharing a pizza with a couple. It's why I never stop eating pizza. If I don't stop, I'll never die. It's logic. Those are good episodes. Mostly focusing on Canada and North America, their missing persons cases, murders, serial killers, and everything in between. If it's morbid or unsolved, Lance has probably already covered it, or will be covering it in the future. And I appreciate that he tries to focus on the voiceless people in the stories, and the psychology of the criminals that commit the crimes he's talking about. There's no glorifying the killers, so go check out Gone But Never Forgotten, wherever you find podcasts. Apple, there. Spotify, you bet. YouTube, yes. Speaking of, Michael, I'm sorry I've been lazy. Maybe we should start posting YouTube again. Anyways, go check out an episode or two and tell Lance Michael and Dave sent you. 
Oh, and like he says at the end of every episode, Michael, be better. That's right. And as always, if you have feedback, send it to the centercutcast at gmail.com or hit up our socials, most notably TikTok or Instagram at the underscore center underscore cut. And if you like hearing us talk and want to hear more things, then go join our Patreon, patreon.com slash the center cut. We'd love to have you. And there's all kinds of fun stuff for you to listen to. And a free seven day trial. And a free trial if you want to give it a try. Please and thank you. Mm-hmm. All right, Chris, I am excited here. I am going to beat Dave as usual. You have created some questions about the middle. Are you ready to quiz us? I am. Now, my question is, uh, do I judge the best answer? The best answer and or you can give us, you know, we can if we both get it right, you could give us each a point. If you know, you're kind of there, you can give a half a point. It's, it'll be the tally of points at the end. It's entirely up to me. So if, say, for example, if, if one of the contestants had sort of been favorable toward the detective music and the other one didn't, <laughs> it would... Exactly. Kind of just be up to me yeah. about how yeah. okay. you'd like to take into consideration. Yeah. Sad but true. <laughs> Love it. All right. So I think I have, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine questions. Yes. Nine Perfect. questions. You know, some of them are a little artsier than others because this, this is a work of art. All right. So the first question's pretty easy. What year does Chinatown take place? Dave, you go first. Okay. How specific do you want to get like uh, give me, exact Give me the year. year. Yep. I need the year. 1938. Okay, Michael. That's a good guess because there are there are two context clues from the first 15 that help me narrow it down to like a four to five year window. There's the big portrait of FDR on the wall during the dam hearing, mm-hmm. and then there's a shot of Jake reading the paper with the headline involving Sea Biscuit. Mm-hmm. So that that puts it in the 1935 to 1939 range, based on what I know about history. So I'm going to go with 1936. Wrong. You split it right down the middle. 37? Yeah. 1937. It was a call 37 or 38. Yeah. So, do, does nobody get points? Or nobody get gets points. Point- I think I'm Damn afraid it. nobody gets points there, I'm afraid. Although, okay. good good job. Good job. Uh, I, I would uh, say the context clue was well, well taken. Okay. So, here's my first artsy question for you. And you talked about the way the film opens. And uh, we get those, we get the detective music, the, the classic saxophone kind of noir Humphrey Bogart saxophone right and then we get black and white credits that are obviously not from the time of the film being made they're from the time of mm-hmm. 1937 and then the as you said the very first images that we see it's like a flip book of Curly looking at these photographs going one and another one and another one and they're portraying something very very sexual and something that you couldn't certainly not have shown in 1937 what's the point of starting a film that way we'll start with Michael so, I mean, you you reference this in the later question, and, and you've talked about it. This movie is neo-noir, and I think the noir part of it is the fulcrum here. Like, noir was popularized in, like, the 40s and 50s, where it was black and white. So I think this is just a way to nod to that and, you know, bow down to its predecessors. It's like that movie in Home Alone, Angels with Filthy Souls. That's noir. <laughs> and that, and this, is, this, is, this is a call to that. All right. Dave? <laughs> I do also think it's a nod, but I think it's more of a nod to The Wizard of Oz. The reason I think that is because 
this movie would have been taking place a few years before Wizard of Oz first came out. Wizard of Oz is the first, um, one of the first colored movies. It was the most ma- first mainstream movie that showed color. And the fact that we go from kind of this black and white environment and it get introduced into a color environment after those credits finish up and then the pictures are pulled from the screen is very Wizard of Ozzy. But they also wanted to Wizard of Ozzy. Set, set, yes, Wizard <laughs> of Ozzy. Uh, if that's not a documentary about Ozzy somewhere, it um so it it has that feel to it but they also immediately want to set the tone of like but this is not that type of movie and that's why i think like black and white images of some people having sex in the woods is a very quick way to to set that um that immediate difference but i think the transition of black and white into color uh because this movie would have taken place only a year or two before Wizard of Oz came out. I'd say each get a point. I don't think, obviously you haven't seen the middle where, where the ruby slippers come in. So that was, yeah. no, there's not a lot of uh, Wizard of Oz in the film. I, don't, I think that's probably not what they had in mind, but yes, I think you both nailed, you said it really well, Dave, actually. And Michael, you did too. You know, neo-noir is meant to be the, you know, Humphrey Bogart always wins. Humphrey Bogart's always right. Humphrey Bogart always gets the girl. Humphrey Bogart's always cool and, and you know, solves the case. And neo-noir introduced this notion that, no, he doesn't. Right. And yeah. we'll talk about it later. But, you know, no, he doesn't in this case. And yeah. so, yeah, we're being we're, we're being said, hey, this is a typical noir. And then we're being told very quickly. No, it's not. Good luck. Surprise. <laughs> so you each get a point. Well done. All right. OK. Why is Evelyn Mulray not played by the same actress at the beginning of the movie as at the end of the movie? Beginning Evelyn Mulray is actually a fake sent there by Noah Cross to try and find information out about Mr. Mulray. Michael? Yeah, I, I was originally thinking a real-life reason, like the first actress quit, but they would just do reshoots. Um, <laughs> but, and here's the thing, like I couldn't even, like, I couldn't tell when I watched it either. I didn't know that they were two different actors. I blame that Lacey Vale thing she has on in the first encounter. I, I honestly <laughs> thought it was the same person. But but there's got to be an in-movie reason, and the only logical thing I could come up with is very similar to Dave. Like it was, It wasn't actually Evelyn. It was Cross trying to set up Hollis yeah. for, for some reason, the, the, the damn reason, and that's it. It was a damn good reason. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed, you guys both got it right. That's one point for both. Um, do you know the, for, for extra bonus points, who played the actress who plays Evelyn Mulray? The, I need the actual real life actress. <sighs> Corilla Deville. Uh, no. Big yes. And she's the mother of an actress you definitely, well, I think you probably know. Oh, man. No idea. Dave, just take your looks. No, no, I don't I don't know. It's Diane Ladd, who's the mom of Laura Dern. Ah, okay. I know Laura oh. Dern. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, okay. We had a lot of parents of actors in this movie, I guess. Yeah. Um, here we go. The Apple Corps question. One of Jake's associates says that all he heard when Noah Cross and Hollis Mulray were arguing is Apple Corps. What does that mean? This was a good one. Mm. I think I've narrowed it down to one of the answers, but we'll see we'll see see how it goes i'm gonna take a gamble here and guess that they weren't actually talking about apple cores because we know that this walsh guy is a doofus according to jake (laughs) i i think that he misheard so then i had to decide what it could be instead i was thinking like appellate court chapel door albacore aperture and then i narrowed it down to appellate court and albacore because i think those are kind of the closest like Apple Core, Appellate Court, Apple Core, Apple Core. I could see the first being like Cross taking legal action if Hollis doesn't agree to build the dam. And then Albacore, because we know they're by the ocean and Hollis is like the, the big tuna that Cross needs to reel in to get the, the money making scheme to happen. 
So I did. I ended up going with Albacore, and he's like, Hollis, if you don't build this damn dam, I'll have you sleeping with the fishes with the Albacore. <laughs> okay. How about Dave? Interesting. I agree with you. I do think oh. it was a. It was he misheard him. I do not agree with what you said, and I feel really good about this. And if it's wrong, I'm gonna be very angry. I think he misheard Aquifer. I think that Mr. Mulray had figured out that there was an aquifer that they could use as a source of water. Mm. And part of the reason that he didn't think the dam needed to be built, but the dam being built was so important to Cross's plans that he was frustrated about that. And they were arguing. I uh, kind of, you might be right. Damn. Uh, the, the answer is Albacore. Oh yeah. No fucking way. <laughs> I'm going to give Michael the full point, although he uh, the, the reason for saying I it is, is incorrect. I can't believe that it's just <laughs> stupid tuna. Oh, <laughs> well, it's it's a, incredible. It's uh, an albacore uh, club. It's a club that to which uh, Noah Cross belongs, <laughs> and it becomes crucial later in the movie that they uh, visit the albacore club, <laughs> uh, but it is, in fact, the albacore club. So, Michael... Goddamn chances, I swear. <laughs> I mean, God. it sounds just like it. Al no, albacore, think... albacore. With how obscurely weird that was, I feel like you cheated. But are fine. you kidding me? Come on! <laughs> wow, well, I can't poor, speak to that. Loser. I'm afraid. <laughs> I'm afraid I can't loser, speak Dave. to that. That is an absurd thing oh, for you. to What get. a poll! I mean, it sounds exactly the same. Apple core, whatever. What poor a poll! Loser. All you can poor. say. Three to two, Dave. We have a one point lead. Michael is winning. All right. So this is uh, this is for Dave. So Noah Cross tells Jake toward the end that he's bringing the valley to Los Angeles by incorporating it into the city. How is this related to the public hearing with the sheep and goats at the very beginning? So, yeah, I think this this directly ties to the sheep guy by him saying that he wants to bring the valley to Los Angeles. Essentially, what he's saying is that he wants to absorb the valley into part of the city. And I do know that the valley in Los Angeles before it was developed and a bunch of suburbs and things like that was a large agricultural area. So by him taking over the valley, you are taking away all of this area for the animals to graze and also probably the supply of water that is in the valley to make that part of the city's water supply rather than a supply to these animals, which would explain why the guy in the beginning was like, where do you expect me to take these stupid sheep? I got a son to feed. His name's Ron Howard. <laughs> <laughs> Global warming. When I, To be honest, when I heard this in the movie, I just thought he meant like he would do some rezoning to make like the valley part of L.A. But I wonder if he is on some true villain shit. And I, he means that he's going to build the dam knowing full well that it won't hold, thus sending the water like a flood to wash down into the valley. Dave, you got this one. Ah. Dave, is, Dave is correct. Uh, but I'm going to give Michael a half point because it's not a yeah. terrible It's not a terrible oh, answer. Neither was Aquifer, but I think you have to <laughs> 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 I think we got a half. We have a half point lead. I the right, the, right. the the mighty judge's right. verdict must stand. But yeah, <laughs> right, I mean right. the water rights become the like they're trying to figure out who owns the land. The middle of the movie does a much longer, kind of more elegant way of describing how this all works. But yeah, I think what Dave said is about right. Okay, so now we're on to Michael. Yes. Uh, simple question. You mentioned that Jake appears to have a, a nasal issue. Mm. So what happened to Jake's nose? Yeah, I, I made the joke earlier about getting his Hot Topic nose ring pulled out, but I actually think he was out looking for albacore on the water 
and somebody throws out their line to go fishing and wouldn't you know it hooks on his nose they start reeling in it just slices through his snaz and as an added touch walsh loses his lunch overboard weak stomach that walsh because this movie if it teaches us anything it's slapstick it's definitely it's <laughs> yeah I also appreciate that you commit to an answer. So even though you know that Albacore had nothing to do with tuna, you're still committed to the fact that they're out of the ocean fishing. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I actually think he gets in a fight with Escobar. I think that they, they have a bunch of run-ins throughout the entire movie because Jake ends up kind of showing up constantly while Escobar is trying to kind of uh, figure out what happened to Mr. Mulray and he ends up obviously becoming a suspect because he, he, we learned that in the last 15. Uh, so I think that he just kind of keeps on running into them and he keeps on kind of getting in the way and they end up getting in a, in a tussle. Zero points for anybody. This is a tough one to know unless you've seen it, sure. obviously. But if you quickly Google Roman Polanski, Jack Nicholson knows. Can you do that real quick? Roman Polanski, yes. Jack Nicholson knows. Can we get a, like a live react to what you see? Oh, he actually, he actually cuts his nose? Wow. Like in real life, this is real nose? Oh, he actually came out of the water. That's almost tuna-y. <laughs> Come out of the water? <laughs> well, he's all wet. He's all wet. Yeah, <laughs> Jake is. Wow. Did you get to the part where he cuts it? Yeah. It's pretty violent, right? It's pretty nasty. Is that his real nose? <laughs> yes, they actually cut Jack Nicholson's nose. So the, 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 uh, the story goes, the actor who is cutting Jack Nicholson's nose there is one of Noah Cross's other henchmen, along with Mulvihill played by none other than Roman Polanski, who says, hey, kitty cat, hey, kitty cat. You know what happens to kitty cats who get their nose, you know, and he cuts his nose. The knife, obviously, he had like a little squib in his nose to make all that blood Uh, splash all over the place. And uh, the story goes that the switchblade, if it was pulled one way, it would give. So that as he pulled it up, Mm. it would just sort of give as he ripped it over his nose. But if he'd pulled it the other way, it was rigid and it would have hurt him. It would have cut his nose. Mm. And they were, there was a big, obviously, they needed to make sure that Roman Plansky was holding it correctly through all of the various yeah. takes that they did, but yes, yeah. I think they they successfully uh, nice. Wow! So there you go. I, we got the live react. I wanted to I wanted to hear you more grossed yeah. out though, because that's a pretty gross scene, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I didn't, I didn't like it at all. I think it's not as gross <laughs> as the bullet hole no. eye, personally, but I mean, it's not. But it was rough. Uh, the, yeah, the bullet hole eye is rough. The shock of that happening in the middle of the movie when you think Jake is cool and you guys never got to see the bandage that he wears through most of the movie. It's not the little mm-hmm. stitches. It's a giant, oh, okay. it's almost like a clown nose because <laughs> the movie is very clearly <laughs> trying to tell you that Jake is a clown, that Jake doesn't know anything and he's constantly being manipulated even though we're on his side and he seems cool, but he never yeah. gets anything right. Okay. The final sequence happens in, in the Chinatown section of Los Angeles. Why? What happened there previously in Jake's life? I think this is for Dave. What happened there? So I do think that when Jake uses Evelyn's maid as an excuse for to send them to Curly, he is not completely lying. But what but I mean, he's lying because he wants them to go to the wrong place. But what what he's not lying about it is I do think that a part of Evelyn's life is what drove her to and and what made Jake think that Chinatown was the safe place for her to be. Um, and that's through Evelyn's butler, who I noticed is James Hong, who I absolutely uh, love, but mainly right. from Big Trouble in Little China. But yeah, I, I do think that her butler actually cares about her. Maybe it's his house, maybe it's a, a family member's house or something like that, but they need a place where she'll be safe, where they can hide her away. And that's why she makes her to Chinatown. I mean, all true. But didn't really answer the what what happened there in previously in yeah. Jake's life. 
part of the question. What do you want to try? You want to try to make a guess? China, this place in Chinatown is where Jake finally figures out that the original Evelyn is not the real Evelyn. This is where he finds that this is actually the real Evelyn. Okay. Jake always, he previously (laughs) rewarded his crew with a poo-poo platter and crab rangoons every time they solved a case. (laughs) (laughs) My answer here is that he, uh, his mom, his mom died in Chinatown. So it's a, it's a rough place for him. So the answer is that Jake was a beat cop in Chinatown Um. and... You never knew quite what was going on down there, and there was a lot of crime, and you never could figure it out. And it, pr- while he was a cop, and potentially the reason he left the department is because he was trying to protect a woman down there, and instead made sure that he she actually got hurt. Ooh! So there you go. That's interesting. Dave tried, so he gets a half point. <laughs> so we're tied. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Okay. Okay, Fine. we got two. We got two more. Noah Ugh. Cross says to Jake near the end, "Most people never have to face the fact that at the right time and the right place, they're capable of anything." <laughs> What's he talking about, Michael? <laughs> All right, I've been confused about it long enough, but I think I'm ready to quell that confusion and throw out my wild theory here. I think Evelyn is not his real daughter. I think she is Cross's stepdaughter, and they are in the desert, right? So, what animals are famous for being in the desert, Dave? I don't know, Michael. What? Camels. And what oh. do camels have, Dave? Uh, water sacks on their back. Humps. That's exactly what they did. They uh, 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 They made a daughter, which you're actually makes his claim step, true. You're not doing a stepdaughter thing. It's technically makes Catherine his granddaughter and daughter, but I think that's what he did. He hooked up with his stepdaughter, which is a not so great thing to admit but that's the only way i can logic out what the hell they were talking about in that scene together saying it's his daughter and then he's with his mother who she's talking it's, it's got to be stepdaughter and daughter that they made together which is gross it's gross anything is possible <laughs> i think it's just a way of him saying that you know that he didn't plan on killing hollis but when presented with the perfect opportunity the right place and the right time to do that a person is capable of anything. Essentially that not everyone gets the perfect opportunity to take advantage of something that they feel like they can't pass up. And when presented with that and you're in the right time and the right place, you have to take advantage of it and you're capable of anything as a terrible human. I think that's some of it. So I give Dave half a point. Because I think that's some of it. He's probably just saying in general, I'm a bad guy and you never know what a bad guy can do. Yeah. However, Michael gets the full point, but he's... Yeah! Even Michael's not quite right because you have uh-huh. to remove you have to remove the word step. What? Oh, it's just right. Kids, this is an incest movie. Wow. Didn't see that coming. Wow. There's a scene that I won't make you look up that's not gross or anything, but there's a pretty famous scene of Faye Dunaway getting slapped around by Jack Nicholson. She's my sister, my daughter. My sister, my daughter. It's been parodied a million times. I guarantee you guys have seen some wow. some joke. Probably something. Somebody being slapped and changing their answer, slapped and changing their answer. But yeah, this is a horrifying little secret wow. in this family. Yeah. Wow, that makes it all make sense. But it's horrible. <laughs> horrible, mm-hmm. but it makes sense. This is why we should be eating the rich, I guess, right? Yeah, <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> all right, we got one more. So this is another sort of artsy question. And we're going to cap it off with the artsy question. This film is probably regarded as the most famous neo-noir ever made, where conventions of the detective genre are flipped around. How has Jake screwed up this case? I got my half a point lead that I'm nursing here. (laughs) I think that he screwed it up by falling for the wrong Evelyn right at the beginning. 
which led him to look into Hollis negatively when Hollis was actually the quote unquote good guy in all of this. He was like literally the only person trying to do the right thing, you know, not hurt people by purposely building a dam that's going to collapse. So while he was so focused on him, the real Evelyn was out doing sex stuff with her old rich dad. And the old rich dad was <laughs> planning more villainy. To be fair, I think that had happened a long time ago. That when no. she was like 15. Still doing it. <laughs> uh, but then once he realized it was not actually Evelyn, it was it was too late. And poor Hollis got killed because of it. What do you think, Dave? I think love is part of it. But I think that Michael chose the wrong Evelyn. I think it is the correct new eye hole Evelyn. Because I hole Evelyn, her, that's her name. I love it. <laughs> I hole Evelyn because <laughs> she. So I think that he got romantically involved with her, and they mm-hmm. ended up having a a little bit of a, an affair type thing. Or maybe he was just in like the wrong place in the wrong time, and people thought they were having an affair type thing um, because they're they were getting close and stuff like that. But I think that is what ended up making him the prime suspect uh, of Hollis's murder when Hollis ends up getting murdered because he was spending so time so much time with. Evelyn Evelyn prior to that. And that is what drove Escobar to, you know, like be not listening really to anything Jake says. And then Jake kind of just tumbled out of control at that point, trying to prove his own innocence and also trying to catch the, the correct killer and kind of screwing that up all along the way. I'm going to give Dave half point more to render it a tie because uh, you're both right. Like, I mean, he basically screwed a bunch of stuff up, but the, but it is a romance. He does have a romance with Faye Dunaway. So that's a little extra. I mean, the real answer to that question is name it. Everything he does, he, he seems very confident and makes a bunch of speeches about how you did this, you did that, you did that in all the charming Jack Nicholson ways. And he's always wrong. Everything he says basically winds up being wrong in the film, but it's not played for comedy, right? We think he's right when he says it. And uh, the genius of the film, of course, is that it's completely yeah. subverting the detective genre. Well, he's right by the end, though. His, his declaration that Cross killed Hollis and the tide, like that. He's Correct. He's, that, he does. Okay. He does piece it together by the very, very end. Yeah. It's too a little late. Little late. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I get zero points, even though I was kind of right. You get, you get a half. Dave gets right. one and you get a half. So it's a tie. Because oh. I'm a jerk. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> <laughs> you just ruined it. Did you see the smirk on his face uh, with the tie? last question? He was so excited. <laughs> wow. We got five points out of nine. That's actually pretty decent. That's above average. Especially, I got to say, for this movie, which is famously incredibly convoluted, you guys made some really awesome leaps of logic that were pretty damn close, <laughs> I have to say. Pretty good. I, I got lucky with the albacore, but uh, it was, that was great. To, enough to tie. So. The albacore. i still <laughs> salty about it. Yeah, so, salty like albacore. Salty. Um, <laughs> uh, but no, seriously, Chris, thank you so much for giving your time beyond the regular time because this took us an incredible amount of time to, to link up with the technology. Uh, I, I know that you're a busy dude, even outside of the football season. Finish that damn fifth book, yeah? I'll do my best. But no, seriously, on the personal side, thank you for the thousands of hours of content that you've put into the world for me to spend my drives listening to. <laughs> I, I appreciate that you don't cave to the pressure of popular stupidity around you, <laughs> even if you were way too slow on Derrick Henry. Just as an aside. <laughs> He's not your type. I get it. Uh, but it's okay. You can't bat a thousand. But before you head out, I know you are you don't want to peddle your wares. But again, if anyone is interested in you and your writing, etc., where should they go? 
You can at least tell us that. The writing is at Amazon. Just look up my name, Christopher Harris. You can follow me on social media. Follow me on Twitter at HarrisFootball. HarrisFootball.com is where all the football stuff is. Actually, I think HarrisFootball.com is also has links to the books if people want to check out. It does. I wrote a neo-noir called The Big Clear that's trying very, very, very hard not to be Chinatown. <laughs> it's trying, <laughs> trying so hard. I'm not sure if I, not sure if I, the, the guy's a stoner. The detective is a stoner. Uh, he's high for a lot of the book, but it's not necessarily like funny in that way. But uh, he's, he's also not a very good detective. So, so if people are interested in that, The Big Clear is a short little book that I wrote. Try not to be Chinatown. It all comes full circle. Yeah, please go check it all out. It will all be in the show notes. But again, Chris, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you being here. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a blast. Wow. Chris is a trooper. You won't even believe how long it took us to sync up the technology. Guy is a true gem. And he was good. A genuinely good dude that's fun to talk to. Man, it must be nice to be on a podcast with him. (laughs) All right, David. We are almost done Chinatown. But before we can be, we need to give it a score with our center counts. Center count. I am going to give this a six out of seven. I enjoyed it quite a bit. And I usually, I mean, neither of us really like period pieces, old, old timey stuff, but it was really entertaining and fun to watch. And I very badly want to go back and watch the middle. It, it was interesting because I don't speak 30s. <laughs> At the end, I felt like Cross gives us like a classic villain explanation of his whole plan. And I still had no fucking idea what he was talking about. Uh, so I need to go back and watch the middle to figure out what the hell's going on. I went with a four out of seven. Now, here's the thing. I went in wanting to just hate this thing, just completely lambasted. it. Because if you slap a pre-1990s date on a movie, tell me it's a period piece, and then also tell me it's supposed to be amazing, I have immediate side eye. You always say that, but then everything that comes around that it's like, this is a classically good movie, you're like, I'm ready to hate it, and then you always love them. <laughs> That's not true. No, you're full of shit. You always have. <laughs> well, anyway... Watching this through the lens of 2023, some of this stuff is obviously like campy and weird. But if I try to put myself in a 1974 phase and I wipe away all the stuff that I know post-1974, this thing must have been awesome. Jack Nicholson is stoic. There's a shocking and gruesome death at the end. There's cool tricks with pocket watches. Incest? Incest. Incest. That's like <laughs> 40 years before its time. <laughs> I just hate old stuff. I just hate old stuff. You can take the critic out of Michael, but you can't take the Michael out of the critic. Does that even make sense? Doubtful. But yeah, no, if you do an HBO Max remake of this, kind of like Perry Mason, I'd watch it. As is, uh, there have been 50 years of improvement since this came out. Like, you don't see me using a TV from 50 years ago to watch my media. So why shouldn't the media be new stuff too? What if they did it, but it was a movie, like it took place 50 years later. So at that point, it would have been like in the 80s and it's still Jack Nicholson and he's still the detective. Ah, so like a 90 year old Jack Nicholson playing a detective. So now he's like, you know, yeah, in his in his 80s and still still terribly solving crimes. I like it. Be interesting. I'd watch it. I'd definitely watch it. That was Chinatown. Dave, what do we have coming up next? Coming up next. We're just going straight back at it. We're hitting up Fleabag Season 2, baby. Yeah. Part of the reason why we're able to do that is we have our center consumed, which is... Fleabag Season 1. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, I mean, we're already watching it. We may as well just take the next step. Yeah. I mean, we're just watching all the Fleabag. Excited for that. But again, the center consumed, you only get if you are a patron. Dave, what else do we have coming up for patrons before Fleabag Season 2? 
Well, before Fleabag Season 2, they're going to get a center chat for Chinatown, and we're just going to be doing a Chinese food draft, which is terrible, but also great. American Chinese food, not like the actual Chinese food that actual Chinese people eat. We're talking the stuff that fat, drunk Americans eat. Yeah, because I don't think you can get General Sows in China. So we are going to be doing a draft. We love doing those drafts. That's going to be fun. Come and hear it if you are a patron. It's going to be so exciting. All right, David, I am through with technology. Maybe it is time to go back to the 30s, but it yep. is a wrap on Chinatown. Like the newly created space in Evelyn Mulray's right eye cavity. It's always better in the center. 